Welcome to the Good Intent, Good Impact podcast, where every week we explore different concepts that help to dismantle white supremacy in American society. In the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about white individuals and how they respond to different conversations and situations surrounding race and ethnicity. And this week, I'd like to talk a little bit about how black and brown folks respond to these situations, and specifically the facts that underpin these feelings that black and brown people have when we show up in predominantly white spaces. Most black and brown people, like myself included, become very good at what's called code switching. And for those who don't know, code switching is going back and forth between different dialects of English, depending on who you're around. This tends to be especially noticeable with African-American people who grow up in certain areas, but live and work in predominantly white spaces. As a matter of fact, as I speak to you in this podcast, I'm code switching right now. How I'm speaking is not generally how I speak with other Black people. I was raised in a food desert, dilapidated, all-Black neighborhood that is very stereotypical of what you see in movies and television, unfortunately. It was riddled with gangs and drugs and a lot of other things that we had to overcome. And we have our own way of speaking to each other that sounds quite different than how I'm speaking to you now. But as I learned as I went through school, and especially as I began working full time after college, code switching is essential in order for me to survive and being able to hide my feelings or hide what I'm thinking, particularly when it has something to do with a race or ethnicity issue that has upset me in some way, shape or form. And I've done this more times than I care to count. Like myself. Many other people I know who identify as black or brown who have to do this code switching game every day are often suffering in silence um, and are hiding their feelings because they know that if they truly express themselves in a way that's authentic to themselves, it could probably lead to some unwanted consequences. Um, I know I have experienced that when I have been upset and I have not been able to control how I show up in this space and I code switch um, to a more African-American vernacular English style of speaking in that particular dialect. Um, I have had people say, you know, you need to calm down or tone it down and be more of a team player. Or I've had people say that they felt threatened by how I come across or how they received me, which for me is these individuals playing right into the angry black woman stereotype and is another reminder that in order for me to be able to have success in my life and be financially stable and have all of the things that I envision for myself, I have to do this code switching and be in closer proximity to whiteness because it's what makes other white people more comfortable. I'm showing up as more of my authentic self, although people will say they want you to show up as your authentic self. Um, is not necessarily true in practice. Um, And it's one of the things that can be very, very difficult for black and brown people to deal with in predominantly white spaces. This often leads to constant microaggressions and constant microinvalidations of our experiences that add fuel to the fire and make it even harder to be in some of these predominantly white spaces because we're not able to be upfront and honest about how we're feeling because we have to be worried about how someone perceives us in that moment and we don't want to get in any trouble and surely don't want to lose our jobs as a result um, of being honest and direct and straightforward with someone 
who may not be able to handle that or may have the implicit bias of the angry black man or the angry black woman um, and that having serious consequences. In a lot of ways, it's a vicious cycle that goes round and around and around. And oftentimes black or brown people find themselves in situations where they're just so exhausted from having to deal with all of it that in a lot of cases they seek employment elsewhere and they choose to leave. There is a name for this phenomenon that I'd like to share with you as listeners that may not be familiar with it. Um, and it's called racial battle fatigue. Um, the term was coined by William A. Smith, who is a professor at the University of Utah. And he talks about racial battle fatigue for black and brown people who experience microaggressions um, based on their race or any other intersections thereof um, that they have to go through every single day. I like to call it death by a thousand cuts um, and having to deal with the little things here and the little things there that create a larger macro feeling of not being truly included um, and not being truly welcome in predominantly white spaces. Um, and essentially, racial battle fatigue, according to um, this professor, talks about the side effects and the symptoms that black and brown people experience as a result of having to live and work in these spaces where they can't show up as their authentic selves and they have to do this code switching game in order to survive that leads to things like anxiety, anger, depression, so on and so forth that is just so unhealthy, um, again, to the point where some people just feel like they can't take it um, and they find other employment. Um, and I know in the field I work in, um, in education, there are even people who choose to leave the field altogether um, because no matter where they go, they cannot escape having to deal with this racial battle fatigue. Um, and that's compounded by the generational trauma um, that black and brown people experience through the cumulative effects of our oppression. Um, we have to remember that there are events that underpin why black and brown people are so tired and why black and brown people are so angry. Just to name a couple of those historical instances that you might be familiar with, um, the genocide of Native Americans um, when white Anglo-Saxon settlers came to um, the American shores, um, black people and the three-fifths compromise, which can be found in the Constitution, that literally said black people were subhuman and three-fifths of a person, not to mention the forced enslavement, Jim Crow, domestic terrorism through cross burnings on lawns and lynchings mass incarceration, and so on and so forth. There are so many things that Black people are carrying through generational trauma, and it shows up through racial battle fatigue on top of having to code switch every day in order to just survive. Um, for those who have Japanese ancestry, um, they carry the emotional trauma of their ancestors being in internment camps during World War II after Pearl Harbor was bombed. Um, and so there's many examples throughout history where black and brown people have been treated less as less than, have not been seen and validated. And that, that trauma carries um, from one generation to the next and manifests itself in ways that sometimes I'm not even sure black and brown people are fully aware of until they find themselves in those moments of, of real strife and difficulty um, and are working through them in a way that is, again, just daunting and tiring, both mentally and emotionally. 
and in some cases can lead to physical ailments as well um, because we know that anxiety and stress can show up um, and manifest itself in physical ways too. I do like to say that on the flip side of the generational trauma that black and brown people experience, white people are experiencing something too. Um, and although they are certainly not dealing with the cumulative effects of oppression, they are dealing with the cumulative effects of those who came before them as oppressors. And I like to call this generational baggage. Um, again, I've done videos on you know white fragility and how that shows up. But I find in terms of the generational baggage, this tends to really fall into the white fragility and white guilt categories. Um, because as much as our ancestors as black and brown people had to deal with what was going on by being oppressed, um, white people have to deal with the legacy of their ancestors being oppressors and what that means for them um, in terms of, again, not so much being at fault because they didn't necessarily do these things themselves, but having to take on the responsibility of working through it and achieving equity for black and brown people um, that they know um, was at the expense of black and brown people's ancestors for many years before. Um, and so as white folks work through their own generational baggage, we as black and brown people need to be mindful of that. We certainly don't need to put that in front of our own needs because again, that would be perpetuating the cycle of oppression and we certainly don't wanna do that. However, it's helpful to remember that white people, as they work in their own cohorts to dismantle white supremacy and leave whiteness behind in exchange for shared humanity, that that's still difficult work for them to do. And out of humanity on our end, we should give them the space and the grace to do that work. As always, there are additional videos and podcasts on Spotify and YouTube that you can take to your organizations to help you do this important work of racial equity. And remember, our good intentions are not enough. We want to make sure that we're thinking about the impact that we're having. And if you are a white person listening to this, it is critical to remember that the racial battle fatigue that black and brown people experience every day is real. The code switching that black and brown people have to do every single day is very real. And in order to achieve racial equity, as you work through your own generational baggage, you have to keep in mind and put at the forefront our generational trauma that we're experiencing and understand that there are facts that go along with these feelings and that we don't just have feelings for feelings sake, but we are working through that generational trauma as we work to heal in predominantly white spaces so we can not only survive, but thrive for ourselves, our families, and future generations.